he would say to me things like, you don't get an equal say because you're not the head of the household. The word submission was thrown around. I, I received messages from my small group that the priority was for me to make sure that I was being submissive. He started to pull scripture into how he would shame me into going along with what he wanted. And that carried over into financial decisions. It carried over into sex. It carried over into every area of life. I'm done with believing these lies. Oh, I'm done with believing these lies. This is the All at Once podcast for women and those who love them. We are God's image bearers, exploring ways religion has been distorted, to silence the marginalized, and to justify abuse. We are Christians, seeking to comfort, heal, and free people from the pain caused by our own religion. We carry much, like all of humanity, all at once. I'm Kelly Browning, and to God be the glory. Submission. This word is what we English teachers call a loaded word, a single word that carries a lot of weight. Many of us grew up believing that there was one God-sanctioned way of marriage. Men, as the head of the household, with their wives under their leadership, expected to submit to his authority. This is another construct that is evidence of rigid thinking, which we talk about in depth in episode two. This episode launches us into four more episodes regarding biblical gender roles. And I wanted to start here with my assistant producer, Sarah, because I wanted you to hear the why behind this topic. Why does it matter that we teach gender roles and submission differently? What fascinates me about her story is how she was so easily dismissed by her church that because the abuse that she experienced wasn't excessively violent, the church did not take her voice and her reporting of her concerns and abuse seriously, which is a problem we often see in our culture when any woman comes forward to report abuse. Our culture systemically dismisses women's voices as being hysterical or dramatic while allowing perpetrators to walk free, while also simultaneously judging, shaming, and bullying women for pursuing justice. From birth until I was around 23 years old, I attended churches that devoted at least one sermon series per year to reinforcing God's alleged design for marriage, which included a loving and understanding husband, with a respectful and submissive wife. In that teaching, the head of the household is the husband, and the women are to be obedient under her husband's authority without question, aka in silence. I want to draw your attention to Ephesians 5, which uses the same Greek word that we find in other parts of the Bible that outline the expectations for wives to submit to their husbands. However, here in Ephesians, that same Greek word for submission is used to describe how the body of Christ submits to each other mutually under God's headship over us all. The marital hierarchy bill of goods that was sold to me since birth quickly broke down after marrying my equal rights for women husband. 
we very quickly learned that God's design for our marriage was for us to be partners, sharpening one another in mind, body, and faith. We are both the head of our household, marriage, and family. We wrestle down decisions together to discover what it is we want as partners. We both support each other's independence and ambition. There also aren't specific jobs that we do in our home based on our gender. Yes, you will typically find me running kids around and taking them to appointments and to school, but that isn't because I'm the woman, the wife, or their mom, and that's my job because that's my gender. It's because where I physically work is 45 minutes closer to their school and activities than my husband's work, and it's just logical that I do those things. And because I typically do more in those spaces... You'll find my husband doing most of the grocery shopping and laundry on the weekends. I like to do projects, use power tools, mow grass, make things, and he does too. We both change diapers. We both nurture, teach, and show affection to and discipline our kids. We also both have an eye for design. This one may cause us to bicker more than other things, if I'm being honest. I remember the first major fight that we ever had was while we were engaged in registering at a Bed Bath & Beyond for our wedding registry, and it was over decorative pillows, very deep stuff. I may have slammed pillows down at the store and shoved that little clicker thing at him and stormed out. Yeah, I've had finer moments, but we've now been working at this marriage thing for nearly 10 years. He is a strong Enneagram 9. I am a strong Enneagram 8. He likes slowness and quietness, while I thrive in fast-paced advocacy work with intensity. I am energized by being outspoken. He helps me rest, and I help him use his voice. When we stop trying to force ourselves into gender molds in our marriage, every aspect of our faith and life improved. We are opposites, yes, but we share a deep and complex love for Jesus and each other. My marriage, though, in all honesty, it really doesn't look that much different from my friends who operate under the marital hierarchy of submission. More often than not, a healthy husband and wife with a traditional marital hierarchy won't look that much different from an egalitarian view of marriage like my husband and I have, which is why teaching mutual submission is not my focus or argument. What I am pleading for and hoping you will hear in Sarah's story is that often there are men among our congregations who leave these same sermons on gender norms and marital hierarchy, and they internalize a very different message. When we hold tightly to that and prescribe it strictly from the pulpit without clearly and directly addressing power abuse, emotional abuse, and manipulation, it is very dangerous. There are many men who grow up hearing those messages that they are the leader and their future wives must submit to them, and that the wife's body is not her own but his, and to them, what they take away from that to mean is they can make any decisions they want to make in the name of quote-unquote following God and dismiss their wives' disagreement, hesitation, and rejection or ability to say no. I know that this is common because this is the thing most women come to me to talk about. Husbands who are abusing them in the name of submission, and when the wife questions him, the wife is told she's being crazy, overly dramatic, too sensitive, or lacking in faith.
that last one really makes me angry. That blind obedience and submission in all circumstances is false teaching. Dismissing wives' voices, concerns, and dreams is false teaching. Teaching women that their bodies are not their own and instead belong to their husbands to use however he wishes, whenever he wishes, regardless of her consent, that is false teaching. Teaching women that she can't say no to her husband, protest, question him, his motives, or have her own thoughts and ideas that are different from his, that is false teaching, and that is what I am addressing. I am addressing the false teaching in churches that breed a wide breadth of opportunities for abuse, and as a side effect, teach women to not trust themselves when the red flags go up, leading them to dismiss their own voices too, which is what happened with Sarah. So now, let us listen to her story. Let us submit to her experience. By altering how we teach submission, we could improve marriages and empower women to know when they are being abused and to bravely take action to protect themselves and or their children and to take back agency over their bodies and lives again and say no whenever they want to without fear of being labeled sinful. The sin is the abuse, not the rejection. So take what is good and beneficial for you and leave what isn't. Here we go. I want to recognize first your courage and bravery to share your story. You are one of the strongest women I know, and I am inspired by your willingness to share your story today and hopes to help other women. Thank you. It always is the charming, powerful, and handsome ones, isn't it? Often abusers are very careful about keeping up a certain image for people outside the home, but then are very different people when no one else is around. And because they can come across as such charming, good Christian men to those outside the home, people do not want to believe the picture that the abused wife paints of the man behind the mask. I haven't met a woman, Sarah, who has been in a similar situation as you, where their abuser doesn't have that different public persona that is charming and likable and easygoing. And then as soon as you get behind a closed door with them, that changes. And I want to first understand that very moment, the first moment you realized something was off in your marriage. In reality, it was a long, slow process of recognition and wrestling with what was happening in my marriage because abuse can be so disorienting. The first moment that I vividly remember was probably only a few weeks into marriage. I don't remember what we disagreed about, but I remember the argument escalated and I tried to leave the apartment to escape the situation, but he physically blocked me from leaving. I remember feeling trapped and controlled. The second moment that I remember was a couple of years later. It was really more of a turning point for me. Shortly after our first child was born, our eight-week-old baby somehow contracted the flu and RSV at the same time. I knew we needed to take him to the hospital, but my ex did not want to take him in. Finally, I insisted on it and convinced him to drive us to the hospital. My ex just dropped us off and left. Mm. I stayed with my son for two nights at the hospital. 
when we were discharged from the hospital, he did not want to get the medicine prescribed for our son because he didn't want to spend the money on it. He did, however, want to leave the next day to go on a weekend trip with his family without me and our baby. When I asked him to stay and help me with the baby, he moped and complained and guilted me for asking. I ended up taking our son to my parents' house for the weekend so that I could have some help, and he went on his trip. So that was a big turning point in my realization that there was something seriously wrong in my marriage. Is there any way you could have known that he was going to become the abuser that he became? I did notice some arrogance, but I thought mostly that that was immaturity and that he would grow wiser as he got older. A natural assumption, Mm -hmm. normal. There was also a little bit of emotional abuse and a lack of empathy, but that was alternated with so much attention and flattery that I didn't really recognize those things for what they were. Mm-hmm. It was a little confusing and disorienting. What I now recognize as significant red flags, I saw then as quirky behavior and immaturity. I did try to break up with him a couple of times because I saw that I wasn't being treated very well. But both times he came back and redoubled his efforts to convince me that he loved me and that he wanted to treat me better. Mm-hmm. And I bought it. I don't think I had the experience to be able to recognize it back Mm -hmm. then. I was very young, but I don't think my age had anything to do with not recognizing the red flags for what they were. What that does, too, as you're talking, I want to acknowledge that believing that a woman could have prevented her abuse What does that do for us? Where does it place the blame, on the abuser or on the woman? It places the blame on the woman. Often people, when they encounter someone who is in an abusive situation, they often want to know, well, why didn't you just leave? Why didn't you see it? When did you see the red flags? Why didn't you do something then? Those kinds of questions are putting the blame on the person being abused. And all of the blame, 100% of the blame, goes to the perpetrator and the abuser. My experience talking to other women who have been in similar situations is that it is understood among survivors of abuse that you can't recognize it until you are kind of stuck in a situation where you're being abused. Interesting that you use the word stuck because whenever in episode two, when I talked to Rochelle about shame, Mm -hmm. she said that's the thing that usually causes people to take that first step of action, of separation or of healing or whatever that is, is that feeling of being stuck. Yes. Like physically like immobilized or metaphorically speaking, but that feeling of being trapped and stuck. powerless. Powerless. That moment, is the moment when most people realize, whoa, what is happening? Mm -hmm. And then they take an action. It takes a lot of courage. Yes. It takes a lot of gearing up to make that phone call or send an email or to even decide what it is you want to tell someone. Mm -hmm. Because abuse is so disorienting, especially with the messages that we sometimes receive about what Christian marriage is supposed to look like, that it's hard to 
decide what is okay and what's not okay and to decide what you want to share with someone. I reached out for help for the first time probably two weeks into marriage. Mm -hmm. I was met with empathy and understanding that first time, but also ultimately received the message that I needed to calm down a little bit, give yep. grace, which was all good advice. When I look back, I also felt that the things that I was sharing, even that early on, probably should have been concerning enough to take a closer look. Well, and just like what you said, Sarah, it's important to note how hard it is to come forward with mm -hmm. anything that's like, oh, I don't know if this is working. Like just to say that out loud requires a lot of bravery. And every time someone comes forward with such a claim, even if it isn't even mentioning abuse, it should be taken very seriously just by one knowing how hard it is to come forward in the first place. Exactly. The message that I feel like I received was that I needed to be careful not to come across as hysterical or too sensitive. Mm. And I think that kind of laid the groundwork for how I approached how I went about getting help. The message received was that you were overreacting. Yes. Did that cause you to not trust yourself and to, to downplay your own abuse? Yes, I think it did. And I definitely feel like the overarching message that I internalized as I went to different people for help was that it was highly likely that I was being too sensitive and that I was hysterical. I became hesitant about talking about it at all. And I became insecure about what kinds of things I felt like it was okay to share. And there were often long stretches of time where I didn't talk about it at all. And I just tried to muscle through and handle things on my own. So you kind of white knuckled it. You, yes. you held on, you sucked it up put your big girl pants on, was the message you were internalizing. You're like, okay, I'm going to do this. Yes, and very then much so for a long time. A long time passed, and then that just wasn't working anymore. No. Tell me about that. So I do think adding children to the mix significantly changed how seriously I was taking the whole situation I started to realize that this was not a great environment to be raising children in and this was not this was not the marriage that I wanted my children to see. I also started to see ways in which my children were starting to be impacted by neglect and further down the road would probably be impacted by emotional abuse at least as well. So that started to become far more concerning to me because it was about more than just me. It was about my children then too. 
there was another point in time where I started to get more serious about reaching out for help. I went to a pastor at my church and he would not agree to meet with me without my husband being present. And initially I agreed to that because it was better than nothing. So my ex-husband and I went to go meet with this pastor. I shared with the pastor that my husband had been getting increasingly angry and aggressive with me whenever I disagreed with him about pretty much anything. And I shared that there had been an episode recently that had really scared me, that he had gotten so angry with me for disagreeing with him about something that he had started berating me and had thrown a heavy textbook um, in my direction. Like, I don't think intended to hit me, but very close. It was intended to send a message. And um, then he had kept berating me and had smashed a beer bottle on the wall. And I had been so scared that I, I took our baby and locked us in my bedroom, which resulted in my husband getting even more angry and berating me for even thinking that he might hurt either of us. When I started sharing my concerns, my ex quickly hijacked the whole conversation and started talking about how emotional I had been because I was pregnant at the time. The result of that whole conversation was that this pastor basically implied that I was being too sensitive and I was too emotional because I was pregnant and that I should go get therapy for myself to work through my hormones and emotional issues. I started crying uncontrollably in that meeting, and this pastor ushered me out the back door of the church. He hid me so that the next people coming in would not see the state that I was in as I left the building. I'd like to use the term gaslighter here. It sounds like you went to someone for help, and whenever you got into that appointment, you were ganged up against and gaslighted. Yes. That is what happened. Of course, you would break down. Of course, you have an emotional reaction. That's our body responding in a way in an environment where you don't have another option to respond because all what you went there for in the healthy way, you were dismissed. So your body breaks down. And then for them, that was all the validation they needed. Yep. To continue down the path of, well, you're very hormonal and emotional, and there's something wrong with you right now. There's something wrong with you, mm -hmm. not your abuser. Right, exactly. The result of that meeting was that I did go to therapy for a little while. The therapist that I was referred to by that church did not recognize the signs of abuse, even though I started opening up to her about things at home. 
She did not see it as an abusive situation. She focused on my reactions to things that were happening in the home rather than what I was disclosing to her. I felt like the pastor had written to her about his assessment of what was happening and that she was treating me according to his assessment, his prescriptive assessment. I stopped going to see that therapist after a little while. I also had a baby and was very wrapped up in taking care of my second child. So it took me a little while to kind of come up for air and start reaching out for help again after that, at which point I emailed the same pastor because I didn't see that there was really anyone else at my church to go to to talk to, to talk about this at the time. And I used the word abuse. I said I really needed to talk to someone without my husband being there because he would not let me talk freely about what was really happening. I eventually got a response from his secretary mm. telling me that they had a marriage conference coming up at our church and that I should check that out. And that was all I got from him. Um, so that was very disappointing. And I started to become a little bit disillusioned with the church as being a safe place at that point. It wasn't a safe place. It was me. not. There were pastors on staff who believed me and who were empathetic, but ultimately not that helpful. I ended up finding a different pastor on staff who the first thing he told me was, I believe you. Powerful words. Very powerful. It changed completely how comfortable I felt sharing with him. In episode one, I talk about three phrases. Sarah, you just described some low-hanging fruit that pastors can take away from this. And that is um, remembering the three phrases that Cindy Dawson taught me that I shared with you all in episode one, which is, I believe you, it's not your fault, and I'm so sorry that happened to you. Those three phrases are very, very, very powerful for someone who's been abused who's coming forward with their abuse. I just want to take this moment to remind you all that if a crime took place, report it to the police, no matter when it happened. If something has happened to you that you didn't consent to, and if you know in your gut that you have been assaulted at some point in your life, I hope that this podcast would encourage you and this episode would encourage you to begin to know that in your head and that you can receive the validation that you've been looking for that what happened to you was assault. And then once you have that validation and you know it in your head, what you've known in your gut all along, that you could start to take some actions toward your healing. And that can look like a number of ways, but I would like to encourage you to visit rain.org and maybe get some knowledge. That's what I did. I visited rain.org and just spent days researching the laws related to cases like mine. And that helped me stand up a little bit straighter whenever I walked into the police station to report my crime. And when you report that crime, a whole host of resources also become available to you, which a lot of people don't know about. There is a victim's compensation fund in the state of Texas through the attorney general's office that pays for you to receive healing from the things that have happened to you. This fund will not only pay for your medical bills immediately following an assault. In my case, after I reported, an um, advocate reached out to me and said, did you know that this fund 
will pay for you to go to therapy for many years. And that's what happened. It isn't a perfect process. I took like about a year to actually get money distributed to me for counseling. But the state of Texas also validates and encourages you to report crimes. And then once you report that crime, again, you become eligible to receive those funds for you to go to therapy that otherwise you may not be able to afford or you write off because it's too expensive. But um, it's pretty cool to have the attorney general in the state of Texas backing my healing. And that feels good. And taking that first step is a hard one. And we talk about that again in Rochelle Bridges episode in episode two, you can go back and listen to that. It it isn't always pleasant, um, but I would love to just encourage you and support you to to take that first step of having agency over your body and regaining control over your life that was robbed and taken from you. Okay, now we're going to keep talking with Sarah about the that low-hanging fruit, those three phrases that the pastor used with her, which were extremely validating and established a sense of trust with her and her pastor. This This pastor that I talked to, I believe he used all three of those phrases yeah. with me in my yeah. first meeting with him. And I felt so much more comfortable opening up about what was really happening. Also was okay with me seeking out and choosing a marriage counselor, not one that was prescribed by this church staff, who was a Christian marriage counselor, um, but who I knew to be experienced with dealing with issues where there was a power imbalance and coercive control happening. He backed me up in giving my ex an ultimatum that he must go work on the marriage with this marriage counselor. Or I was going to separate from him. If he did not start working on this. So we were in counseling for a year and a half almost. Half of that time we were separated Um, But still in weekly counseling, I think the thing that really was the deciding factor on whether or not I was going to pursue divorce was that at some point he stopped listening to counsel. He was going to start doing what he thought was best and he did not, he was rejecting the counsel of anybody else at that point. Before we continue with Sarah, I want you to hear about what my friend Rebecca is doing through her business, Second Journey. Rebecca is one of our Patreon sponsors for our $10 a month membership, and we are forever grateful for her partnership. Saying goodbye to false stories is something we do every day in the Second Journey community. Hi, I'm Rebecca, your coach and companion on the Second Journey. I'm offering you a free core values guide at secondjourney.life guide. It takes important inner work to discover your true self, but the work is worth it because you want to live fully as the woman you were created to be. So come get your free core values guide at secondjourney.life guide. Thank you, Rebecca. 
As a reminder, you can visit patreon.com slash all at once and sign up to become a monthly financial patron. And if you sign up and you're one of the first five people to sign up for the $10 a month patron, you will receive that values deck from Second Journey that Rebecca created and sponsors. Also, visit our website allatonce.us for merch and other info for how you can support our work. Now, back to Sarah. The time period when I saw the high conflict and abusive environment impacting my kids the most was in the few months before I separated from him. So you were going to counseling, but you hadn't yet separated. Yes. So I had started the process of confronting him about the abusive patterns. He was unwilling to listen to me at that point, but I was still living with him. So we were still all living in the same house together. And it was just, it was traumatic Mm. for all of us. My older child was definitely showing signs of distress during conflict that was happening He was aware when it was happening. He was putting himself in the middle of it, and it was very upset, upsetting for him. But I also started to get feedback from his preschool teachers that he was acting out significantly at preschool, and they actually called me and asked if everything was okay at home because they were noticing such concerning signs in him and his behavior at school. It was becoming apparent to people outside of our home that my children were experiencing trauma in our home. So you got the call from your preschool. Was your husband home at that time? He was. He was at home, and he was starting to kind of monitor who I was talking to. So he was aware that I got a phone call, and my husband had started following me around very closely, trying to hear what what we were talking about. And in that moment, you made a decision, right? I did. I, I had decided it was time to tell the truth, answer questions truthfully, stop covering up what was happening. And I knew that I needed to get out of the house quickly and walk around in my neighborhood where I was visible if I was going to continue having this conversation or he was going to block me from leaving the house. So I pretty much ran for the door. He followed me and he followed me a little ways down the street and was asking me questions the whole time while I was on the phone. Eventually, I mean, I just kept walking away from him and I kept talking to the teacher and I kept answering her questions and I told her exactly what was happening in our home. He he left me because it was becoming apparent that he was kind of harassing me out on the street in our neighborhood. In that conversation, I remember thinking, I need to get us out of here. I shouldn't be having to have this conversation right now. This is ridiculous. I have this visual of you walking toward truth and freedom Mm -hmm. with him trying to pull you back physically and you in all of your strength and bravery saying enough. Mm -hmm. I'm going to stand in truth and freedom. I am leaving. This is it. Yes. And the next week, I picked up my kids from school and drove them out of town to my parents' house. Mm -hmm. And they knew what I was doing. And they were supportive. And they hugged me. (laughs) It was kind of 
a new feeling for me to feel like someone knew and was supporting me in that decision. Are you and your kids better off after the divorce? Yes, definitely. I have not looked back. I think it was the hardest decision I've probably ever had to make in my life. But once I made that decision, I have felt so much peace about it. And I have definitely seen that any other decision would have resulted in so much more pain and destruction. Often women who are in marriages like you were in, they want to stay for the sake of the kids. And what I hear you saying, Sarah, and what I see in your life as your friend is how you and your kids are thriving now that you've separated yourself and your children from the abuser. Although your kids still go back to that environment with him, you know that they do have a home base that is healthy and safe and supportive and good. To me, that is so important for them to to have that stable and loving home environment that even when they are sometimes exposed to a different kind of environment, they are able to recognize the differences. That becomes the outlier, Mm -hmm. the abnormal, because now they know what love and normal, a good, healthy, attached, loving home looks like. Yes. So whenever they experience something that is unhealthy or not good, they are able to label it as such. Yes, which to me, I just think that is is so important that they're able to see things for what they are, to know truth, and to understand the difference between healthy relationships and unhealthy relationships. Because I think that sets the tone for their relationships going forward in life. And even if... I mean, Divorce is hard on children. It is not what I would have chosen for them. But I think it is better for them to know truth and to see things for what they are. It would be much worse for them to be in an environment where they received constant messages that something that is harmful and hurtful is to be expected in relationships. And that's dangerous. Yes. What did submission look like in your former marriage? The word submission was thrown around. I I received messages from my small group that the priority was for me to make sure that I was being submissive. As that was being pushed to me from my small community at church or my small group within my church, I noticed that he was picking up on that as well and was trying to ride that out. But he would say to me things like, you don't get an equal say because you're not the head of the household. He might, he got to make the final decisions in pretty much every area of life. He considered himself the leader, the one with the right to make the decisions. The expectation was for me to stay in a box that he created to define my role as homemaker and mother, hostess for his friends. And if I had goals or dreams outside of that, he 
really never did anything to encourage or support or enable me to, to pursue anything else. He left so much responsibility to me to take care of that I never had time or energy to pursue anything else other than the things that he left for me to do. And if I asked for help, he told me it was my job. He was rarely open to making adjustments or compromising so that things would not be so hard on me. He started to pull scripture into how he would shame me into going along with what he wanted. And that carried over into financial decisions. It carried over into sex. It carried over into every area of life. I was having scripture quoted at me, blog posts being sent to me justifying certain things that are not even legal. It did evolve into a situation where it was consistently communicated to me that I was not allowed to have agency over my own body, that it was sinful for me to expect to have agency over my own body. That rejection and saying no was wrong yes. instead of the abuse. How would seeing women represented in church leadership change that? After I got married, it, it did not register that there were no women in significant leadership positions in this church. I'm not really sure why I did not recognize that. Maybe it's that I had not had life experiences that would make that noticeable or obvious to me. But I, I kind of became immersed in this community where there were no women in leadership, and that became the new normal for me. At some point during all of this, I did start to realize the absence of women in leadership and the absence of the voices of women in decision-making. And I started to notice the heavy emphasis on gender roles within this community. But as soon as I started needing help and needing guidance from women who might understand what I was going through, or might have been more familiar with it, I started realizing there, there was no one. My community silenced women. There were little things unrelated to my situation that I started to notice, like my small group would not consider doing a Bible study that was written by a woman mm. because the men didn't think it was right to listen to the teaching of a woman. Mm. There's a belief whenever I talk to communities about this topic that churches like this that create this culture that breeds power abuse and the silencing and oppression of women, there's this belief that these churches are small or these churches don't really have a lot of influence or mm, yeah, like th these are like outlier churches. But unfortunately, that's just not the case. That's not true. The church that you attended had thousands of people mm -hmm. attend it, members, yes. uh, multiple campuses, multiple services, far-reaching impact. And to be clear, though, this was not the view of the entire church as Correct. I understood it. It yes. was a smaller group within the church. Unless we proactively as a church work toward understanding a more holistic view of gender roles and how people are abused whenever you teach such rigid, prescriptive 
ways of marriage as a church body that it creates these little pocket anomaly groups where they do silence women directly. And if we're not proactive about it from the from a cultural standpoint, from a larger view standpoint, from head leadership, from the pulpit, from every representative opportunity, if we as churches aren't proactive about that, we are directly responsible for creating a culture that allowed your abuse to to continue and for you to be silenced and shamed and judged and outcast. Yes. Which is a shame. I'm so sorry. If we wait until there are problems to be addressed in which women's voices would be very valuable to start establishing women in leadership, yeah, it's Mm-mm. too late. There is no backup for the oppressed woman. Yes. Men have to yield their power over to someone who has less power than them or less representation or space. Yes. And I hope that people listening to this who are in positions of leadership in their church would be willing to consider just how good it is to have women represented in some way, either in a small Mm -hmm. way or in larger ways. But any kind of women represented in leadership has far lasting and deep impacts for liberating women out of abuse. What do you want to leave us with? Don't give up on finding someone that you can trust, that you can be open with. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, depending on the community that you find yourself in, it can be very difficult to find someone trustworthy and safe to share with. But don't give up on that. If you feel like you're not being heard or understood or listened to in the community that you're in, it's okay to look outside of that and get a second opinion. In my experience, I went to multiple counselors and pastors before I was able to start really making sense of what was happening. Along with that, I want to point out that I think it's important to think about the lasting impact that an abusive environment will have on your children. It's important to be able to or to learn to trust yourself, trust your gut, Trust how you feel about how things are going in your marriage or in your home. I think in an abusive environment, the messages that you receive are that you should not be trusting yourself, that you should not trust how you think or how you feel or your perception or your experiences. But I think that is where healing starts to happen is when you learn to trust yourself. Before you go, I want to let you know about the amazing women who contribute to the production of the All at Once podcast. First, we have Michelle Rayborn. She is the singer and songwriter of our theme song, A New Day. You can find this song and more of her work anywhere you get your jams. Other contributors to the podcast include Sarah Jordan, Molly Bays, Taylor Diggs, Maddie Scott, and Samantha Gall. Thank you for your hard work to get us to this point. Also, remember to visit us on our website, allatonce.us, to become an email subscriber, a monthly financial patron, or to buy some swag. Thanks for listening.